Amen. It's a blessing to be here uh, with you all. It's a blessing to receive such an invitation, such a welcome. Amen. If you got a Bible, would you go ahead and go to Luke chapter 22? We'll be in that passage that Kelly uh, just read for us. We're in week number two of our series that we're entitling Jesus and. Jesus and. is We'll be looking into how Jesus responds to different kinds of people and, di- and people in different kinds of situations as a means of growing in our understanding of who Jesus truly is. For myself personally, in my walk with the Lord, one of the ways that uh, I have found most comfort in who God is, one of the ways that I have grown in my understanding of him uh, is through seeing how he responds to people. You can learn so much about how how someone is, the character someone has, or, or what their love actually looks like by seeing how they respond to people in different kinds of situations, different kinds of circumstances, and that's what we are focusing on throughout this sermon series. Last week, we looked at Jesus and the hurting. Jesus and the hurting. Uh, This week, we're entitling the sermon, Jesus and the Disappointment. Jesus and the Disappointment. How does Jesus respond to those who might often view themselves as a disappointment based on things that they have done, based on wrongdoings, as all of us have done wrong in our lives? How does Jesus respond to us when we have been a disappointment, maybe to ourselves or to others? So, The context for Luke chapter 22 is we're going to be looking at Jesus' response to Peter as Peter has just done something that is awful, something that he was confident that he would not do. It takes place during the last night before Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, And this is in the verses right before this section, a crowd of people came uh, with clubs, with swords to arrest Jesus. So this is in a very difficult time of Jesus's night. This took place in the Garden of Gethsemane when they kidnapped Jesus. We, we pick up in the narrative, Luke chapter 22, verse 54. It says, then they seized him and led him away, talking about Jesus, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. So the people who had taken Jesus, who came forcefully with the clubs, with the swords, they've taken Jesus to the high priest's house where they're having this discussion about what exactly they're going to do with Jesus. And the high priest has this courtyard. But because they came and did this in the middle of the night, obviously it's very dark. So they set a fire so that they'll be able to see. And Peter sat down with them at the fire. And one of the things that you need to understand to, I really think, grab this, to grasp the emotional weight of this passage uh, is that Jesus is in a very difficult place at this time. Yes, he was fully God, but he also had feelings and emotions and stress. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, just a few verses earlier, before he was arrested, Luke said that Jesus was in agony. That term agony, it means anguish. It can mean severe mental or physical suffering. So yes, he was God, but he also was in distress. And I want us to see what happens next. Verse 56, a servant, then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him, talking about Peter. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. So one of the servants that is there sees Peter, maybe because he just came around the fire, so now they're able to see each other because of the light, tells those around him that Peter was with Jesus when they arrested him. This is one of the guys that was just with him. She says, Peter says, I I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. Verse 58, 
A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly, certainly. He's saying, I'm sure of it. Certainly, this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. Peter was referring to Jesus, who had been a teacher and mentor to him. Someone who was now down and in their worst situation, of, Jesus was in the worst situation of his life currently, and Peter basically disowned him in front of everyone. Verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So this is after Peter's denied him three times. And Peter, Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. You know, what I believe hurt Peter the most in this time wasn't just what he had done, but rather that he knew that Jesus saw him and Jesus knew what he had done. Notice that Peter did not run away after the first denial. Peter didn't go away weeping bitterly after the second denial or even immediately after the third denial. But what we see in verses 61 and 62 is that he didn't cry until after he had realized, well, sorry, he didn't cry after he had realized he disowned Jesus. No, he went out and wept bitterly after the Lord turned and looked at him. And then Peter remembered what Jesus had said to him when, Peter, when Jesus told him that he would deny him three times before the rooster crows. And after that, it says that he went out and wept bitterly. The term bitter, it speaks to there being a severe pain or a severe and painful, I should say, amount of grief that Peter was experiencing. So yes, Peter is grieving his decisions, but he's also dealing with a lot more than just grief, I would say. Peter's also dealing with a lot of guilt. He's done wrong and he knows it. He feels the guilt of his decisions to deny and disown Jesus but don't misunderstand, Peter is dealing with a lot more than just grief and guilt. If it was just grief and guilt, then I believe that Peter would have had that response after he did the wrong thing. If it was just grief and guilt, then Jesus, then, then Peter likely would have went out and wept bitterly, maybe after the first time he denied Jesus, maybe after the second time, maybe after the third time before Jesus even looked at him. But what we see is there's something about him being exposed. Something about him knowing that Jesus saw him that seems to have led him to respond the way that he did. Something about him remembering that Jesus told him that this was going to happen, and now Jesus saw him when he did it. Peter is dealing with a feeling that he just let down someone that he was closest with. Someone that has time and time again gone out of his way to help him, to teach him, to guide him, to mentor him, to lead him towards truth and guide him in the right direction. Someone who was likely a bit of a father figure, for him. He literally let down the savior of the world. I remember one time recently, uh, actually this was probably about five or so years ago. Um, I was, uh, I remember being tired um, for maybe a long day or something. And I was on my phone, probably scrolling social media or something like that. And one of my sons comes up to me and he just wants to have a conversation with me. And I'm, I'm hearing him, but I'm kind of not hearing him and I'm responding, but I'm kind of not really responding. Um, and he said to me, Dad, will you put down your phone and look at me when, when we're talking? And it cut me so deep. It cut me so deep. 
And I believe part of the reason that it cut me so deep was the shame that I felt in that moment when he said that. Not that he said anything wrong. Um, and then what I noticed my response to be at that time was I kind of withdrew even further. It was, I shut down emotionally. I might have continued on in the, in the conversation, but I wasn't fully present because I was so overwhelmed by the shame that I felt when he said this to me. I withdrew. I felt so awful. I felt ridden with shame. My response, it was similar to Peter's. And I, I, I didn't weep bitterly like he did, but in my heart, there was this brokenness that I felt nonetheless. I didn't physically get up and leave the way that Peter did. But emotionally and relationally, I did disconnect. Here's a key component to what Peter and I did, or rather what we didn't do in that moment. In that moment, we didn't repent right there. We didn't repent and decide to do what we wish we would have done in the first place. No, even after the attention was drawn onto what we did wrong, we still turned away from what we were supposed to do. Peter didn't go and correct them and do like he said that he would have done, as we'll see a little bit, little bit later, what Peter told Jesus that he would do instead of denying him. We didn't turn towards Jesus, but rather we stepped further away from what we could have and maybe even should have done. This reminds me of another story from a lot earlier in the Bible. If you recall in the book of Genesis, after God created Adam and Eve, the Bible says that they were naked and unashamed, which is basically a frame that says they were completely exposed with no shame whatsoever. No shame in their relationship with each other, no shame towards God either. Obviously, Adam and Eve, they sinned against God. And then what did they do after they sinned? Did they go to God and say, God, we messed up. This is what we did wrong. No, they went and hid themselves, tried to cover themselves up. They went away from God. God comes towards them to have a conversation about it that they might own up to what they had done. But instead of going to God, they went and hid themselves because they were afraid. They didn't repent and turn course immediately. In fact, when God talked to them about it, they blamed, or Adam at least blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. I said earlier that Peter was dealing with much more than guilt. I will say that after doing something wrong, we experience guilt when we feel like what we have done is unacceptable. But I will say we experience shame when we feel like that means that now we are unacceptable. I will define guilt as when we understand that what we have done is, some, is something that is unacceptable, but when now we ourselves see ourselves as unacceptable, we have moved on from just feeling guilt, and now we are experiencing Shame. That's what I felt in my conversation with my, with my son. I'm convinced that's what Peter and Adam and Eve felt as well. And there are a couple aspects of what Peter did that I think often can lead us to feel shame because of what we've done. The first one is when we feel like we've disappointed others. When we feel like we've disappointed others. Again, Peter didn't respond like that until Jesus looked at him. He knew that he wasn't there for Jesus in a time of great suffering, in a time when Jesus was going through something very difficult and very dark. He knew that he wasn't there for Jesus or, or, or owning up to his relationship with Jesus and the fact that he knew Jesus the way that he should have and the way that he thought he would. Do you relate to that feeling today? You ever felt like you really let somebody down? 
Maybe you were supposed to be there for them. Maybe you're supposed to hold up your end of an agreement and you didn't do what you were supposed to do. I've talked to many, many parents that feel this way. It's easy for us to feel like we've let our kids down. We, we feel so much pressure to do right by our children and be patient and yet firm, to be kind yet authoritative. And we often beat ourselves up if we aren't perfect at it. Some of us feel like disappointments because of how maybe we haven't met our parents' expectations. And maybe we feel shame because of that. Maybe it's not our parents, maybe it's other family members or just other people that you know, or maybe other loved ones that may have expected you to do this or do that or achieve this or achieve that or, or be successful in this or in that. Or maybe we sinned against them in some way, against someone that we really love and care about and it really hurt them. Maybe in a way that we're finding it difficult to forgive ourselves from. I know I've certainly done this. I felt so much shame because of things that I've done. And honestly, it makes it hard for me to look people in the eye oftentimes if I get to that point of feeling great shame about sin against someone else. The shame tells me that they'll never accept me again. Maybe you don't feel that way towards other people. Maybe you feel that way towards God today. Maybe you perceive that God is just looking at you like, when are you going to get yourself together? Maybe you believe that God is looking at you like, when are you going to mature and follow me the way that you're supposed to? There are many Christians that feel burdened and overwhelmed with shame because we feel like, just like Peter likely felt in this moment, that we have let God down. And we feel unacceptable to God because of it, oftentimes. Feeling like we have disappointed others often leads us to feel shame. Feeling like we have disappointed God often leads us to feel shame. There's something else. There's a second aspect that I believe Peter is experiencing as well. And that's when we feel we've disappointed ourselves. When we feel we've disappointed ourselves. See, just a few verses prior to the text that we've been looking into so far today, Jesus and Peter had a conversation about Peter denying Jesus. Here's what was said, verse 31. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, that's what he called Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Peter's like, Jeter, no matter what happens, I'm riding with you to the death. If they throw you in jail, I'm going to be in the cell right with you. We going together. I'm going to be with you through it all, no matter what comes. This is probably less than 12 hours before Jesus was taken away to be crucified. It hadn't been long since Peter said this. Verse 34, Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Peter says to Jesus, I'll go to jail with you. I will die for you. No matter what comes, I'm in it with you. Peter said, Jesus said, you ain't gonna make it to the morning. You're not gonna make it to the rooster crows in the morning before you deny me. Denying something, denying Jesus is something Peter thought he would never do. He was convinced that he would never do that. It likely hadn't been, again, 12 hours since those words that came off of his lips. He was all about it when it was time to talk the talk. But when it came down to it, when it was time to walk the walk, he gave in to fear. 
He lied. He denied Jesus. He did the thing that he thought he'd never do in a million years. If you would have asked me when I first became a dad, I probably would have said that I would never have been the, the, the father that would struggle to make sure he's engaging with his children because of how much time he's spending on his phone. Well, you know, I would never, I would never do that. That's not me. I, I would not, I would not do that. That would have been on my list of things that I wouldn't do. Family, if you've ever done the thing, family, I should say, have you ever done a thing that you said you'd never do? Have you ever done something that you used to look down on others for doing? What's your list of things that you just knew you would never do? Many of us, rhetorical question, amen church, rhetorical question. Many of us have, like Peter, probably even told God that we'd never do this or never do that. And we told him, or maybe we told him, I'll never do that again. And we found ourselves doing it again in a moment of weakness. We did the thing that we said we would never do. Maybe it's not one specific thing. For many of us, we just expected ourselves to be more mature at this point. It's not a specific sin per se, but we just assume that we'd be more mature as a follower of Jesus at this point. We thought we'd be more faithful as a follower of Jesus at this point. We thought we'd be more consistent in prayer as a follower of Jesus at this point. We thought we'd be more consistent spending time meditating on the word of God at this point. And we are disappointed in ourselves because we are not where we thought we would be. We thought we'd have more control over our temper at this point. We thought we'd be a little bit quicker to forgive at this point. We thought we'd have more self-discipline and self-control. We thought we'd be better at trusting God at this point. Obviously, when we were younger, it made sense to us. Okay, maybe I'm a new believer. I'm still learning to trust God. But after being a Christian for so long, we thought we would have learned to trust him more at this point. We thought we would have memorized more scripture at this point. We thought we'd be maybe a better leader at this point. We didn't think we'd still be giving ourselves to the same sin struggle at this point in our walk with Christ. Like, man, I've been following Christ for 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years at this time, and I'm still struggling with this? I'm still dealing with this sin pattern in my life. For many of us, there's a deep shame that we often feel because whether we realize it or not, we feel like a disappointment to ourselves. We feel we have disappointed ourselves. We feel like we have let ourselves down. We haven't put enough time or energy or focus or whatever into our walk with Christ. This sermon series is all about how Jesus responds to different kinds of people. How does Jesus respond to those that have disappointed others and disappointed themselves? I got a few points I want to bring out to answer that question. Number one, he sees how we fall short. We got to be honest about it. He sees how we fall short. He looked at Peter and saw Peter when Peter denied him. He knew what Peter did. What Peter did. There's not one thing that you have ever done that God has not seen you do. There's nothing that you've done that he doesn't know about. You have no secrets. You can try to cover yourself like Adam and Eve did. You can try to run away like Peter did, but know that there is nowhere you can go and not be seen and known by God. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about everything that you've ever done. Now, if you're like me and you struggle with shame, that may not be the most comfortable thought for you. 
Let me tell you why I believe it's an amazing and glorious thing that he sees when we fall short and that he always knows. It's amazing because he has all that knowledge of you and he still loves you the way that he does. He has seen everything about you, every wrong thing you've ever done, everything that has caused you to disappoint others and disappoint yourself. And he still says, you're mine and I want you and my love does not change for you and my desire has not changed one bit. He has knowledge of things that you have done that will cause others to reject you. He has knowledge of the things that you've done that you haven't told anybody about because you don't know how people will respond to you. And he still loves you the way that he always has. His knowledge is so great and so vast that he doesn't just know the sins that you have committed. But think about what he said to Peter. He knew the sin that Peter was going to commit before he committed it. And he wasn't keeping Peter at arm's length. He wasn't giving Peter the side eye. He wasn't distancing himself from Peter in any way. Peter was always, even amongst the 12 disciples, Peter was always in the inner circle. Many believed that Peter was actually the one that was closest to Jesus out of all the disciples. And he knew that Peter was the one that was going to go to that courtyard that day and deny him in his time of greatest suffering. He knew every sin that Peter was going to commit. He knew from the day he called Peter when he was fishing out on the Sea of Galilee that Peter was going to deny him, but he still called Peter. But he still had a plan and a purpose for Peter's life and how he was going to use him. He still loved and welcomed and embraced Peter dearly. The fact that Jesus knew this was going to happen and he was willing to show so much love to Peter during their time together up until that point tells us more about his love, I would say, than if he didn't know all of Peter's sins, past, present, and future. The fact that he knows reveals to us the depth, the consistency, and the steadfastness and the faithfulness of his love. It shows us that his love is greater than anything that we could do to move away from him. For the followers of Jesus in the room, the fact that Jesus knows the sins that you're going to commit before you commit them should assure you that you are no less acceptable after you sin than you were before you sin because he was accepting and welcoming you into relationship and fellowship with him the whole time when he knew exactly what you were going to do. Your sin might have surprised you. It didn't surprise God. If you've told God what you weren't going to do and you still did it, he already knew that you were going to do it the time that you said that you weren't going to and he didn't distance himself from you at all. The fact that he knows all of your sin that you have committed in the past, the fact that he knows every sin that you will ever commit in the future is a testament to the faithfulness of his love towards you. It's a testament that your sin, if you are in Christ, does not separate you from him because Jesus died for you to make you his own and your sin is not powerful enough to separate you from him. He always knew. He knew every sin. He knew every bit of unfaithfulness. He knew every unloving act. He knows every bit of doubt that you have in your heart and he accepts you. The father does the same way he accepts his son and has never sinned against him. It's one thing to be able to forgive someone for their past, but Jesus, he he got that preloaded forgiveness. The Christian, those who are are following Christ, he has forgiveness stored up for you for the sins that you have yet to commit. Romans 5.20 says this. I like to read it in the King James because that's how I grew up hearing it. It says, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. 
that even in the areas where you feel like you have sinned more than you expected yourself to, no matter how much your sin abounds, no matter how much sin that you have, there is always more grace in your God than there is sin in you. God is better at forgiving than you are at sinning. There is more forgiveness in your God than there is guilt in you, and there is more grace in your God than there is sin in you. God's capacity to forgive you is greater than your capacity to sin against him. I'm going to say that one again. God's capacity to forgive you is greater than your capacity to sin against him. And some of us have been pretty good at sinning in our lives, if we're going to be honest. His capacity to forgive you is far greater. It far exceeds, it far surpasses your capacity to sin against him. He sees and he knows about our sin. I'll tell you what he also sees. This is point number two. He sees how he's going to deliver us. He sees how he's going to deliver us. It's comforting to know that he, that he sees and knows all of our sin, past, present, and future. Because we know of how he continues to accept us, even though he has this vast knowledge of everything about us. It's also comforting to know that he sees and knows how and when he will deliver us from the sin in our lives that has caused us to feel like we're a disappointment. Notice what he says to Peter in verse 32. After he informs Peter of how he's going to mess up. Verse 32, but I pray for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. It's important that we don't just see that Jesus predicted how Peter would mess up because that's not the only thing that Jesus predicted. He also predicted that Peter would turn, the scripture says. He predicted that the sin wouldn't define Peter's future. He also predicted that because of his work in Peter's life, Peter wouldn't be forever stuck in that sin and that he would turn away from. He didn't just predict the sin. He predicted the restoration as well. He predicted the repentance that would take place in Peter's life because he says, when you turn again, go and strengthen your brothers. Jesus doesn't just know all the times you've messed up and all the times you will mess up. He also knows that because he is working on you and working in you and transforming you, he knows that you're going to turn away from that sin and at some point it will be a thing of the past. He knows how he's going to sanctify you. He knows how he's going to continue to grow you. He knows the ways in your life that, you'll, that you will look back and say, you know what, God has actually matured me in this area. I'm not the same person that I used to be. I may not be where I want to be, but thank God I'm not where I used to be. He knows all of the ways that you are going to be, to be able to say that because of his faithfulness and his commitment to you and your growth and your development as a follower of Christ. I want to look at 2 Corinthians 3.18 real quick. And it says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God. So he's referring to all who have had our eyes open to the glory of God through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image, talking about the image of God, from one degree of glory to another. He's saying, as we behold the glory of God, we are being transformed and made more like him. 
and all the glorious godly characteristics that we see in him, his love, his grace, his mercy, his righteousness, his justice, and so on and so forth, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are becoming more and more like that as we continue to behold him and his goodness. Those those characteristics and attributes of God are becoming more and more of our own and more and more a part of who we are as he works through us as we keep our eyes fixed on him. I like the way Philippians 1, 6 talks about it. It says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He says, I am sure of this. The apostle Paul says, I am confident of this, that no one can convince me that God is not going to complete and finish the work that he has started in you. So just like how Jesus looked at Peter and told him that he's going to turn away from that sin. He looks at you and says the same thing. I'm here to tell you today that every single wrongdoing, every single sinful habit, every single sinful behavior pattern in your life will one day be a, sin, a thing of the past. Anything that you've done in your life that came to your, maybe that came to your mind even during this sermon that has caused you to feel shame or caused you to feel like you've disappointed yourself or feel like you've disappointed others or feel like you've disappointed God at one point and, and on one day will be a thing of the past. For some of those things, that's going to happen in this life as God continues to transform you and sanctify you and make you more and more like him. He's, he is working. If you are a Christian, he is working in you right now and every day of your life to free you from the grip and slavery to sin. He is working in you for many of the things we have struggled with. There will be a point in time in this life where you look back and say, God delivered me from that. God delivered me from this sinful pattern in my life. And for some of those things, that will happen when we go on to glory to be with him forever. But either way, you're going to wave goodbye to that sin because of the power and the love and because of the grace of our God. One more point for those of us who have seen ourselves or viewed ourselves as a disappointment. He sees how he's still going to use us. He sees how he is still going to use us. I'm going to go back to verse 32 again. Last time, I know it's our third or fourth time. Last time I'm going to verse 32. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. He looks at those that see themselves as a disappointment. And he says, not, not only am I going to forgive you by paying the penalty of your sins, not only am I going to work powerfully in you to ensure that one day you'll never yield to that sin again, but in the meantime, while I'm working on you and transforming you, I'm also going to use you for the greatest purpose and the greatest mission that this world has ever seen. I'm going to use you to be a part of the mission of building the eternal kingdom of God. Whatever it is about you that might cause you to be disappointed with yourself or might cause others to be disappointed with you, those things don't cause Jesus to keep you on the sideline while he uses the people that are more faithfully following him. Those things don't cause Jesus to disqualify you from being used by him. Your biggest mistakes, your biggest mess ups, the ones that make you feel disappointment in yourself, they don't keep Jesus from using you. If anything, if anything, it makes it a bigger testimony to his grace and to his power when he does use you for his purposes. I'm thinking about Moses right now. I'm thinking about how God, before God used him to deliver his people from slavery to Egypt, 
how Moses killed a man, hid the body, and then when someone found out, he ran away. I'm thinking about David right now, who was known in the Bible as a faithful man who loved God. And I'm thinking about how he slept with someone and then had her husband murdered. But God still decided to use him. I'm thinking about time and time again, the examples that we have of those in the Bible that God used in phenomenal ways, in ways that we remember, in ways that we can read about in the scriptures. And it is a testimony to the goodness and the power of God to use you, not just to use them, not to use the person that you think is spiritually more mature than you, not to use a person that's memorized more scripture than you, not to use the person that prays more than you, not to use the person that you look to and say, maybe I'll never be like that. But no, we need to look at the faithfulness of God throughout the scriptures and say, this is how we know that God will use you. He desires to use you. Peter had just looked Jesus in the face. Jesus knew that, that what he was saying was not ultimately true. Peter had just looked at him and said, I'm ready to go to jail and I'm ready to die with you. Jesus knew that that wasn't going to happen. And what did Jesus say? He said, once you've turned again, go strengthen your brothers. Once you've turned again, go and strengthen your brothers. I'm I'm still going to use you. I, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. But you're going to mess up. You're going to fall. Afterwards, turn to me and you're going to do that and then I'm going to use you for my purposes. Here at Midtown Two Notch, we refer to ourselves as a Jesus-centered family on mission with him. We're about coming to God as a bunch of people who, like Peter, have messed up, have sinned against God and sinned against others who have not upheld our agreement with God time and time again. We also come to him like Peter as one who has received God's forgiveness and are continuing to be transformed by the power of God. And in the process and in the process of that, in the process of sanctification, being free from the power of sin, we're being used by him to encourage each other in our faith and to let a lost and broken world know about the Savior who came and rescued sinful people like ourselves. This is what it is to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. It's collectively continuing to turn to him after we have sinned and serving to be used by him for his purposes. It's not allowing, it's through the power of the Holy Spirit, not allowing the shame that we often feel to cause us to move away from God, but rather to embrace the forgiveness that God has given us, knowing that we can, because of what Jesus has done, come boldly to the throne of God. We can confess to him, we can turn away from sin, we can continue on about his mission and him using us, no matter, no matter how sinful we see ourselves to be or how much we have disappointed others or ourselves. This is what it is to be a Jesus-centered family on mission and may our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ continue to make that so of us. Family, will you pray with me?